Uh, it has been a little while since I've stood up here and done this. Uh, it's been actually almost two years. Uh, August 2015 was the last time I got a chance to stand up here and preach. Um, and a couple things have changed since then. Uh, one, I've gotten older, and I've been told my eyesight's going bad, so I had to get these so I can actually see you this morning. Uh, and two, the last time I preached uh, was the last time that there was a pulpit standing right here. Uh, it's when we switched to this new stand, and so if you happen to see me just like standing up here like this, uh, it's because that's still my reflex from preaching up here. Uh, is it making that noise again? Do I need to switch? If you were in second service last week, there was like this noise to the microphone. And the first like 20 minutes it was happening, I was sitting there with Bree. I was like, I cannot focus. And Keith is preaching a message on how we need to be listening well. Like something needs to happen. And so I told them this morning, if it's making that noise, just flag me down. I'm ripping it off and we're going to this mic. Um, this morning we are continuing in the doctor's cure. Uh, but we're actually going to be going out of mark. Uh, and so the doctor's cure has been out of Luke, and so you may be like, wait a second, Kyle, isn't that cheating? Uh, how can you say we're continuing the doctor's cure when we're actually going to be going out of Mark? Uh, it is cheating a little bit, uh, but the reason is uh, the passage that we're going to be using uh, in Mark actually takes place in Luke chapter 8, which is where we've been, where Pastor Keith has been the past couple weeks, uh, Luke chapter 8. And the reason, there's kind of two reasons that I want to go out of Mark this morning. Uh, the first is, if you remember, if you were here for the beginning of the series on Luke, uh, or if you've read Luke before, you know that Luke actually wasn't an eyewitness uh, to the events that took place. Uh, that Luke was not there as an apostle when Jesus was teaching, when he was preaching, when he was doing his miracles. But it was later on that Luke decided, I'm going to write a gospel about what he's done. And so I'm going to go interview eyewitnesses. So Luke talked to a lot of people who would have seen Jesus, observed his life, watched him. And it's also believed, also probably likely, uh, that Luke had some access to Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark was probably the first gospel written, and so there's a good chance that Luke was familiar with Mark's gospel or even actually had access to a copy and may have been looking at the story we read in Mark this morning as he was writing his own account of it. So, so we're going to go back to a source that Luke may have used. Uh, and the second reason is Mark tends to be uh, a shorter gospel. It's only 16 chapters long, and everything tends to happen quicker in the book of Mark. And so the stories that are found in Mark that are also found in Matthew and Luke tend to be shorter in Mark, but that's not the case with this story. Uh, this is going to be the story of Jesus calming the storm, and it's actually longer in Mark than Matthew or Luke. It's still a short story, but it contains more details uh, than it does in Matthew and Luke. So that's why we're going to be going out of Mark this morning. You can up to open up to Mark 4. Uh, it's Mark 4, 35 through 41. That's where we're going to be. Uh, William Ernest Henley uh, was someone who grew up in the 1850s. And like most people in the 1850s, uh, life was not very easy for him. He grew up in Britain, and at the age of 12, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Uh, the tuberculosis resulted, uh, it was in his left leg, and it resulted in his leg being amputated from knee down at the age of 12. Uh, his father was a bookseller who struggled and never made that much money, 
And when William was 19, his father passed away and left uh, his wife and William and the other siblings in poverty. Add to that, a couple years later, William got tuberculosis in his right leg, uh, and the leg was only managed to be saved because of a surgery that they were able to do now, but it resulted in William spending over two, or almost two years in the hospital recovering. It was during this time in the hospital that William started to do what he would become famous for. He started to write poetry. And it's also when he wrote one of his most famous poems, one that you may or may not be familiar with, but probably recognize the name too. It's a poem called Invictus. Uh, and it's also the name of a movie that came out several years ago about Nelson Mandela and the South African rugby team called Invictus. And in this poem, uh, the last four lines, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the last four lines, this is what William says. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. As William laid suffering, as William laid with his life uh, not in his control, he said these things still. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You may have never heard that poem before, but most likely you've heard those lines or at least heard something along the line of them. Perhaps you've sung along to them in a song. Uh, most recently, an Imagine Dragons song called Believer contains lines along the same thing. I'm the master of my sea. Uh, perhaps you've just heard them in the idea that we are in control of this life, that we can do whatever we want. I can be whoever I want to be. I I'm still hoping to be a NFL uh, center lineman, but I don't think that dream's going to turn out very well. Uh, you may have heard it in this idea that I bend life to my own will, right? Life is my horse, and I ride it, and it submits to me. It's the stuff of pump-up speeches under Friday Night Lights. It's the stuff of um, motivational videos on YouTube, that if you would search Invictus, you'd immediately see a motivational video with this poem in it. And yet it's also the stuff that I want to argue makes bad theology because it gives us a wrong view of ourselves, a wrong view of the world we live in, and a wrong view of who God is. I want to show this by looking at a familiar story this morning, the story of Jesus calming the storm. And as I said, we're going to look at that in Mark chapter 4, so follow along with me. Uh, we're going to be going out of the ESV. I know normally we're in the NLT, uh, but I chose to do that this morning because I'm going to break it up based off a word that's used three times in this passage in the ESV. And maybe we'll catch it as we're reading through. On that day, when evening had come, he said to the others, this is Jesus talking, let us go to the other side, and leaving the crowd, they took with him them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace! Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. I want to break up our time this morning in four ways. I want to look at Act 1 
a great storm. You'll notice if you're following along that Mark repeats this word great three times here. Act one, a great storm. Act two, a great calm. Act three, a great fear. And then act four, which actually isn't in this passage, but the ultimate storm. Act one, a great storm. Uh, we, we are not in control of this life. Despite the illusion that we think we have very much control over this life, we are not in control of this life. Uh, th this story, I think, illustrates this greatly, and especially the first part about the storm. It's very calm that evening, it seems. Jesus tells the disciples, hey, he's been teaching all day. I want to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is like 13 miles uh, long, five miles wide, kind of at its uh, widest point. Jesus says, I want to travel across. I'm going to be teaching somewhere else tomorrow. So the disciples take him in the boat. And then we learn, well, there's some other boats that go along with them. And so we have to assume, okay, there, there is no storms on the horizon, that things are calm, that it's a good night for sailing across the sea. And yet that all changes so quickly. All of a sudden, a windstorm picks up and begins to whip the boat around. There, there's perhaps nothing better than weather to illustrate that we are not in control of this life. Weather can change on an instant, on a dime. It can switch from being calm to all of a sudden we're in a storm. Uh, in a, an opinion ad piece for the Washington Post, there was a meteorologist who was kind of defending herself and defending her coworkers for when they get predictions wrong, um, right? Because we tend to be like, uh, with meteorologists, we tend to be very harsh, like, you guys predicted four inches and we got six inches of snow. Off with their heads, fire them. And, and the meteorologist is like, yeah, all right, chill out, chill out. We get predictions wrong. This is going to happen. And here's what she said as she defended herself. She said, what we always try to stress is that things change in the field of weather prediction. The weather doesn't always behave in expected ways. Even with all the data and knowledge we have at our fingertips, Mother Nature always gets the final word. The atmosphere is still an untamed beast, and meteorologists do the best job they can, just not a perfect one. Right? Weather changes in an instant, and we can do nothing about it. The Sea of Galilee was probably no better illustration uh, than this. The Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded on all sides by mountains, some reaching as high as 2,000 feet above sea level. And there's some valleys that are cut into those mountains. And so winds whip down over the mountains or whip through those valleys and can stir up the sea very quickly. And add to that the fact that uh, the, the moist, uh, warm air that sits on the sea can uh, combine with the dry, cooler air that's up in the mountains and quickly create dangerous storms. The Sea of Galilee can change in an instant. That's exactly what happened this night. But the disciples are experienced seamen, right? At least four of them are fishermen. They've spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours on the sea. They know what to do when storms hit. They know how to change the sail. They know how to row. They've seen this before, and they know what to do. And yet they quickly realize this one is bigger. This one is out of our control. The wind is not stopping. It's only picking up. The waves are not stopping. They're crashing in. Something needs to happen, or we are going to drown. The disciples realize what we all realize when storms hit our lives, that we are not in control despite the fact that we may think we are. We are not in control. We, we tend to think that we're in control when things are going well, and I think we fail to realize just how little control we have. 
Like, I think about my day so far. I woke up this morning. I, I could have, I didn't control that. Like, I, I could have just as easily probably not woken up. That's outside my control. I ate breakfast this morning. If I lived in another century or another country, there's a good chance that that wouldn't have happened because I wouldn't have had any food to go to. I drove to work this morning, or drove here to church this morning, I mean, uh, which technically is work. So uh, I had control over that, right? I was driving the steering wheel. I was controlling the gas pedal. No one else was in the car with me. Yeah, but, but someone just as easily could have fallen asleep, been looking at their phone too long, or just wanted to play some mid-morning chicken and slammed into me. I realize that's a little morbid, but I think we need to realize we are not in control. And until we realize we're not in control, the fact that God is in control won't be good news to us. As long as I think I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, I will not need a God who is in control. Because I think I can control everything. And so we have to realize this. And, and when we do realize this, I think there's ways that we can respond to it. A couple ways. There's probably more than these ways, but there are at least two. One is I can get anxious and I can get worried because there's so much that is outside my control. I can get anxious and worried and think about everything that could go wrong and everything that could harm me. Uh, Saturday Night Live a couple years ago did this skit where the band Lonely Island, who was on SNL, uh, sung a spoof song off the idea of YOLO. Uh, if you don't know what YOLO means, it means you only live once. No one ever says it anymore, so you don't need to know. Um, but they, de they did this spoof where they said, okay, let's say you really do, on you only live once. And it was kind of this idea, you would say it when you were going to take a risk or do something crazy. Like, YOLO, let's go jump off uh, that cliff into the water, whatever. And, and the spoof was, okay, if you really only live once, there's a lot of things that could go wrong for you. And so you should be worried and concerned about all the things that can go wrong for you. And they listed off all these things that can harm you. Again, this is a spoof. Uh, loud clubs, drugs, banks, cars, buses, boats, trains, planes, pianos, saunas, stairs, meat, kids, electric sockets, food, mailmen, blankets, furniture, sun, and yourself. And so the refrain was, YOLO, isolate yourself and just roll solo. And the idea is you have a lot of things that you should be worried about that are outside your control. And so one is when we realize we're not in control, we can get worried and we can get anxious and we can get concerned. And yet we should realize that does nothing to change the fact that we're outside of or that we don't have control. Worry, anxiety, all these things does nothing to change the fact that we are not in control. And so our other option is we can trust someone who is in control. We can trust someone who is in control. Uh, I don't really like flying on airplanes. And it's not because I have like this deathly fear about crashing. Uh, I know the statistics, like I'm more likely to die in a car crash than an airplane crash. I know all that. But I, I especially don't like land or taking off and landing. And the main reason is because I know I'm not in control that I have zero control over that plane. And no matter how tight I grip my seat, or no matter how worried and anxious I am, it does nothing to control that plane. That I ultimately have to trust in the pilot who is flying, that he's been trained, that he knows what he's doing, and that he's going to land that plane well. So we, we can get worried, we can get anxious, or we can trust someone who really is in control. We see in act two, there is someone who is firmly in control. 
Act 2 talks about a great calm that comes over the storm. Uh, so the disciples go, and they wake Jesus up. The boat is swamping. They're going down. They realize there's nothing they can do. And then there's this incredible fact in the story that Jesus is just asleep. Like, Jesus is asleep when there's waves breaking on this boat. It should shock us. What is going on here? He's exhausted. He's asleep on the cushion. And the disciples wake him up and ask what I think any of us would ask. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Don't you care that we're drowning here, that we're about to go down? Don't you care that there's a storm that's threatening our lives, that we're about to perish? And I want to, I want us just to soak in that question for a second. Because I think that this is our heart's cry. That this is often the first question that happens when things go wrong in our lives. That when things happen that are outside of our control, that we didn't want to happen, one of our first hearts cry is, God, don't you care? Don't you care that this is happening to me? Don't you care uh, that I'm grieving? Don't you care that life is not working out for me? Don't you care that I'm depressed? Don't you care that I have a rebellious child? Don't you care that I've lost a child? Don't you care that I can't have a family? Don't you care that everything seems to be going wrong right now and you're not doing anything about it, God? So our hearts cry in the first moment when things go wrong. God, don't you care? Because it sure seems like you don't. It seems like you're asleep. It seems like you're nowhere to be found. I think what the disciples cry in this passage, we identify with if we've ever experienced something wrong in our lives. God, don't you care what's happening right now? Uh, Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary uh, that was sent out, for America's first foreign missionary, sorry. And uh, he lost his wife, and he lost a young child uh, in the matter of like six months. And he was also severely ill during that time. And this is what he said during that time. Uh, God is to me unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. God seems like he doesn't care because everything seems to be going wrong right now. God, don't you care? I, I think God provides an answer to that, but we're going to get to that a little later. First of all, we need to see Jesus waking up. He wakes up. He doesn't respond to the disciples. He stands up. He looks at the storm, and he says, peace, be still. And then something crazy happens. The storm listens to him. Like, that should shock us. It doesn't because we've heard this story so much. But the storm just stops when he speaks to it. Who is this that has command over the wind and the wave? I, I'm always amazed at people who have uh, really well-trained dogs. And part of why I'm amazed at that is because I have a dog and she's not well-trained at all. Uh, and that's partly my fault because I haven't put the time in. But I, I say to my dog, sit. And she just kind of stares at me like, do you have a treat? And if she knows I don't, uh, she's like, I'm not sitting for you. Are you kidding me? Uh, I say to my dog, come here. And she's like, all right, sweet, we're playing a game, and runs across the yard the other way. Uh, my dog does not behave well at all. But I'm amazed at people who have trained their dogs very well, who when they say sit, the dog responds instantly. When they say come here, the dog comes. When uh, they rebuke the dog, they say bad dog, the dog cowers with its tail between its legs. Jesus commands the sea and the wind as if it's his well-trained, domesticated pet. Be still, peace. 
and immediately there's complete calm over the sea, and the storm is gone. And here, here's the deal. If he controls the wind and the waves and the storm and nature, then he must control everything. Because in the, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish mindset of this time, the wind, the waves, especially the sea, represented chaos. Everything that was outside of our control. Everything that was untamable. Everything that we could not harness and uh, control on our own. And so if someone could control the wind and the waves, they must be the creator. They must be the one who made the sea, who made the wind, who made the waves if they recognized his voice. I wonder if the disciples were thinking as this happened, as they watched this, of Exodus 14, where God splits the sea in half and then brings it crashing back down. I wonder if they were thinking about Psalm uh, 107, 23 through 31, where it says these words. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. I wonder if the disciples are thinking about that, if Psalm 107 is going through their minds. Who is this that can stop even the wind and the wave? It must be the one who created it. It must be the one who is in control of everything. And here, here's a couple things that I want us to see from that. One is, it means if there's someone who's in control of everything, someone who can even talk to nature and it listens, it means our lives are not run by chance. That the things that happen to us are not by chance, not by accident. Uh, in Invictus, earlier in the poem, uh, William Henley talks about the bludgeonings of chance. That he just feels like he's getting pounded by chance. In the op-ed piece, you heard the author talk about uh, the untamable uh, mother nature. But if Jesus controls the wind and the wave, and he controls everything, then it means that it's not some impersonal blind force that's in control. It's a personal creator who's in control of everything, and nothing happens by chance. And here's the other thing that I want us to see from that. That this world is not run by some uninterested God who sits up in heaven and pulls levers. And just makes things happen, but never really cares. Because here's the person who created the wind and the waves, and he's in the boat with them. It can't be that he's not interested. He's in the boat with them, riding out the storm with them. He must be interested in their lives. Act three, a great fear. We, we see uh, the sea immediately become calm, and the scene after a storm is an eerie one where there's just silence. There's no noise. The sea is completely still. And Jesus is the first to speak up, and he looks at the disciple and said, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And I think we look at a verse like this and we can almost take it, we can almost look at it and be like, okay, if we have faith, that means that things won't go wrong in our lives. Or if we have faith, that means that God will take storms away. He'll make them immediately go away. That we should not experience hard things. That we should not experience suffering. That Jesus is saying, if you just have enough faith, nothing bad will happen to you. And I want to say, that's absolutely not what he's saying here. Absolutely not what he's saying here. He is not saying, if you have faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you. This is one of the things, as a youth pastor, I so desperately want to communicate to youth and to myself. That when things go wrong in life, as they definitely will, it does not mean that God has let you down or that he doesn't exist. Because faith doesn't mean that life's going to go perfect for you. Uh, This guy by the name of Christian Smith, who's a researcher, did this massive research project in 2005 where he was trying to find out what do the youth of America really believe? When they say they're religious, when they go to church or they talk about what they believe, what do they really believe? And he came up with this name for their belief system. He called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you heard that before? Moralistic therapeutic deism, which essentially means uh, we believe that if we're good people and we have faith in God, he will bless us. He will make our lives happy, the therapeutic part. And he's really not involved that much. He's just kind of out there. He created the world, and he only steps in when there's trouble in our lives, and he gets rid of it. Right? If I have faith, things will go well, and if they're not going well, God will enter into this world, and he'll take care of it and make my problems go away. I want to desperately say, no! Faith does not mean life will be easy. And so when problems come into our lives, it does not mean, oh, God can't exist. It does not mean, oh, I don't have enough faith because this trouble is happening to me. Faith does not mean our lives will be carefree, smooth sailing. Instead, what I think Jesus is saying in this passage when he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Is he's looking at the disciples and saying, why why is your faith tied to your circumstances? Why, when all of a sudden things went wrong, did your faith go out the door? Why is your faith tied to what's happening in your life rather than what you know to be true? There's a tendency for us as American Christians especially, that our faith rides the wave of our circumstances. That when things are going well and it's smooth and great, of course God exists. Of course he's awesome. Of course he's doing great things. Because life's going just how I wanted it to and how I expected it to. But when chaos starts to break loose and things go wrong and expectations break down and life doesn't turn out how we want, where is God? Where is God? And can quickly turn into, there is no God because he wouldn't do this in my life. I want to point out, that's not true. That's not true. Just because things are going wrong in our lives does not mean that God has abandoned us. And it does not mean there is no God. Because faith does not mean that life will be easy. And we'll see how we can know that in just a second. But first I want to look at another shocking thing that happens in the story. Do you know what happens after this storm? The disciples are more afraid than they were during the storm. Like, the disciples are scared during the storm because the storm's about to sink them and take them down. They're about to die. And so naturally they're afraid. We'd be afraid too. And then the storm ends, and it's calm, and it's quiet, and everything's great. 
And it says they're filled with an even greater fear than they were during the storm. Why is that? Why, why aren't they jumping up and down, high-fiving each other, saying, this storm's gone? Why is it that they're more afraid after the storm than they are during the storm? Uh, I, if you ask any of the youth, what is Pastor Kyle afraid of? Probably one of the first things they'll say is snakes. I hate snakes. Uh, I especially don't like rattlesnakes. I, I don't really know who would like rattlesnakes, actually. Like, if you like rattlesnakes, uh, talk to me afterwards, because I want to know why. But I don't like anything about rattlesnakes. I don't like the fact they have fangs. I don't like the fact they're poisonous. I don't like the shape of their head. I don't like the rattle of their tails. I like nothing about them. And so one of my fears every time I go out into the woods is, like, what if I run into a rattlesnake? What if, I, what if I'm running or walking along, and I come up, and there's just a rattlesnake sitting there? What am I going to do? And, and so if that ever would happen... Um, well, it has happened, but if it would ever happen again, I would, first of all, scream, and then I'd freeze, and I'd be like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, this thing's about ready to strike me. I have no idea what to do in this situation. So picture that scene with me for a second, and then picture in the midst of that scene, all of a sudden, out of the brush, a bear comes out and stomps on that snake. All right, it's ridiculous. I realize it's not going to happen, but just picture it with me for a second. Here's what Kyle's not going to do. Awesome! Great, the snake's gone. This is fantastic. I'm going to be like, I don't care about a snake. There's a bear that's right in front of me right now. With a snake, at least I stood a chance that like, if it bit me, maybe I could get anti-venom, get out of here, get some help. A bear can crush me in an instant. That's not good news at first. That's scary. And so the disciples in this moment realize, yes, while the storm is calm, there's someone greater than the storm, someone greater than nature, someone greater than every other force we've ever imagined. And he's no more in our control than the storms are. We can't control him any more than we can control the storms. He doesn't work according to our expectations either. And I think they begin to realize, wait a second, if he could calm the storms, then he may be the one who brought it in here in the first place. If he can make a storm go away, he can just as easily make one come into our lives. If he rules over the storms, he could just as easily not take it away and let it push and crash and move us around much longer. The disciples realize, here's one who's in control, but he doesn't work according to our expectations. He may take the storm away, or he may leave it for a very long time. He may remove the storms, or he may bring more into our lives. We have no way of controlling him. So they realize, all right, here's one who's in control. How can we trust him? How can we know that he is good? Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where uh, the, the children in the story are about to meet Aslan for the first time. And so they're talking with the beaver, uh, one of the beavers, about Aslan. And the beaver has this to say. It says, Aslan is the lion the lion, the great lion. And Susan responds, oh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. The beaver looks back and says, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. How can we know this one who is in control, this one who rules everything, not just the wind and the waves, but every aspect of our lives, who brings storms and takes them away, how can we know 
that he is good when he leaves the storms, when he brings them, when he doesn't do what we want. That's act four, the ultimate storm. How do we know that he's good? How do we know that he cares? The cry of the disciples, don't you care about us? How do we know that he cares when bad things are happening and he's not taking them away? I think Mark provides the hints at that in this story. Because Mark shapes this story to be very similar to a story in the Old Testament. Uh, It's the story of Jonah and the whale that you may be familiar with. And Mark drops hints that I think point us back to that. The two stories are very similar. Both take place in a boat. All right, big deal. There's more stories that take place in a boat. Uh, Both involve sailors that are afraid because there's a great storm and they're afraid they're going to perish. Both involve someone who is asleep during the storm, Jonah and then Jesus. Both involve a miraculous calming of the sea. And both involve sailors that are more afraid after the storm than they were during the storm. But there's one big difference that happens. In Jonah, what happens to calm the storm? Jonah gets thrown overboard. He looks at the sailors and he says to them, listen, if I perish, you survive. If I die, you live. But if that doesn't happen, we all go down. Right? And in the story of Jesus calming the storm, we see him just speaking to it. So where where does this happen? Well, Mark's gospel is set up so that the first portion of it, the first eight chapters, are meant to show us Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who came as the Messiah. And then the second part of it, the last eight chapters, are meant to show us he's the one who came to suffer for our sake. There's something that happens in Mark when Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the Son of God. Immediately it takes a turn, and Jesus starts heading for the cross. And he starts telling them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And that's where Mark's gospel ultimately ends. How do we know How do we know that this guy is for our good? We've got to see him facing down the ultimate storm. We've got to see him facing sin, death, destruction, evil. And there's no one in the boat with him. It's only him. This is what's happening when he's on the cross. And he's not using his power to say, stop, be still. He's putting his power aside and letting the storm swallow him whole. Suffering for us. Taking on what we deserve. And then three days later, he's rising again with power over sin and death. And he says, I'm coming back again one day to make all the storms go away. So how do we know in the midst of the storms? This guy can be good. This guy's good. This guy can be trusted. How do we know? Because we've got to look at him head bound, facing the ultimate storm for our sake. And we can know, okay, no matter what happens in my life now, I know he's good because he went to that cross for me. There's a story told by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, who's the author of um, Treasure Island, some other famous books. Uh, This is attributed to him, which, interestingly enough, he was good friends with William Henley. Uh, They became friends when William was sick. And the story is about a group of people that are out at sea in the midst of a storm. And they're down in the boat, and the winds are hitting, and the waves are crashing, and the rain is pouring down. And one of the men gets up enough courage to go above deck. And he looks out and he sees the steering wheel. And he sees the captain behind the steering wheel. And the captain is bit by bit turning that boat back out to sea. And and, and the captain looks across and gets a glance at this person's face. And just gives a quick smile. 
and the person goes back down. He fall, or drops back down into the bottom of the ship, and everyone asks, hey, what's going on up there? Is the storm going to stop? What's happening? He says, I have seen the face of the captain, and he smiled at me. All is well. There's still a storm going on. We don't know if we're going to crash into the cliffs, but I've seen the face of the captain. He has smiled at me. All is well. In the midst of our lives where there are tons of what-ifs, tons of things that are out of our control, tons of storms that come in, how can we know that someone's in control that can be trusted? Because we have seen the face of the master, the commander, the one who is in control. And at the cross, he smiled at us. And it forever says, he is good no matter what happens in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, I believe... Um, 